We're bringing you this podcast in partnership with our friends at Virgin Money, the home of brighter business banking. The whole premise of Clean Beauty Insiders is going into your fridge and taking something that, you know, would just be going off or, you know, you've eaten half a banana. Why don't you use the rest of that? in a hair mask or you've got a little bit of green smoothie left slap it on your face you know and without even calling it or knowing that's what it was we had these philosophies of just being more conscious with your consumption it's you know there is a a serious situation facing us and we're very cognizant of that however we wanted to create a brand um, for many reasons one of which we thought we could do things better and we thought we could raise the standard of what's expected from a sustainable beauty brand or a brand purporting sustainability in some respect Welcome to The Jump, the Virgin Startup Podcast, bringing you the unheard stories of the founders behind some of our favorite startups. I'm Ben Keen, and today on the podcast, how two friends turned a natural beauty blog they started for fun into pioneering multi-million pound sustainable beauty brand, Bybee, breaking ground here and in the US. Elsie Rutterford and Dominika Minarovic didn't set out to start a business. The two friends met at work and started to experiment making beauty products in their kitchen, documenting their creations online. Their blog, Clean Beauty Insiders, quickly grew a dedicated following, resonating at a time when the wellness movement was really taking off in the UK. We were just like quite interested to watch, you know, the likes of kind of a vegan diet philosophy suddenly going from being really alternative and lentil driven to really trendy and all about sweet potato brownies. And we were sort of like, yeah, we, we, we want in on a bit of this. They were still in their day jobs when they were invited to write a book of their natural beauty recipes, which then led to them launching their own line of products in 2017 under the name of Bybee or Buy Beauty Insiders. And that business has since taken off around the world. They recently raised $7 million in Series A funding to launch in the US and their products hit the shelves of the American mega-chain Target in January 2021, catapulting the startup into the largest beauty market in the world. We're, you know, we're talking, I mean, we're selling like thousands and thousands of units a week through Target. That just blows, actually blows my mind every time I see them come through. Like thousands of people every week are buying our products somewhere in the US. Like it's just, it's crazy. But this is luxury beauty with a difference. Sustainability is at the core of their business. Their ingredients are all natural, vegan and cruelty free. Their packaging all recyclable. They are one of the world's first carbon neutral beauty brands and they are heading for carbon negative by 2025. This is something you don't really hear much about in the beauty space. So how did they make it happen? Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to be uh, with some what feels like at least on the outside looking in, um, some masters of the startup game. And I know it's only been a little over four years, but um, reading through your story, the impact you've had, the, the range of products you've built, the, the podcast, the book and everything you've done, it feels like an incredible um, journey and time for you both. Um, but I'd love to start with where this, where this journey began. And perhaps, Elsie, you can tell us about... Um, what was the moment where you thought, ah, here's a problem in the world that I want to solve? Yes, you have to cast your mind um, quite far back now. It's Every time we tell this story, Dominica was saying yesterday, she feel, it makes her feel older and older, which is true, because we always go, it started in, and then it's like, oh my goodness, it was actually eight years ago now, nine years ago now. So 
We met in 2013. You do the math, however however long ago that was. And uh, we were working together in digital advertising. Um, so we were actually in sales roles, which has gone on to become probably the most useful skill set that we both have um, in running your own business because fellow founders will know um, you are constantly selling um, to everyone, suppliers, investors, retailers, clients, whatever. So um, we were back then selling um, pre-roll video, which is essentially the video um, advert, advert that sits in front of the really bit, the bit of content that you want to watch, the really intrusive 30-second non-skippable advert that um, you just want to get to the end of, basically. We were out selling that. Um, and we started at the same company at around the same time, so we were brought in to do very similar roles and sat next to each other and just really quickly hit it off Um over a kind of shared, you know, shared mutual interests of many different things. But one of them happened to be a shared kind of love of health and fitness. And and let's bucket it under wellness, which back then, 2013, that wellness scene was quite new, especially here in the UK. You had the sort of um, deliciously Ellas of the world kind of just hitting the scene. You know, Instagram was still kind of blowing up at that at that pl- point. Influencer wasn't even a word. It, they were called bloggers. Um, and we were just like quite interested to watch, um, you know, the likes of kind of a vegan um, diet philosophy suddenly going from being really alternative and lentil driven to really trendy and all about sweet potato brownies. And we were sort of like, yeah, well, we, we want in on a bit of this. This is quite a quite a cool kind of movement to be a part of. And we were kind of like following it. And, you know, we go to the gym together and we'd swap recipes and that sort of thing. Um, and we are also both um, massive beauty junkies. So um, we'd always be kind of, you know, out in London getting the latest, latest facials or um, swapping notes on the latest skincare products and makeup. And um, really our light bulb moment was came much later, but was a collision of those two things. Um, so as we started to unpick, um, you know, doing well for our bodies, um, what we were eating, really understanding ingredients, food labels, um, we then kind of naturally started to think about what we're putting on our skin, because our skin is our, you know, your body's biggest organ. Um, and there was a bit of a disconnect in that we were spending an awful lot on what we were putting on our skin. But actually, when we came to think about it, we didn't really understand what was in any of it, because beauty product labels, are, you know, really difficult to read. They're, they're written in Latin most of the time. Um, they're, you know, incredibly scientific. And um, to the kind of mainstream millennial beauty consumer like we were, um, they're not that straightforward. And so we went through this journey where we kind of like started to unpick beauty labels and really see if we could understand more about our skincare and what we were buying. And I guess we kind of wound up at feeling quite disappointed um, because really there was just a ton of water that aqua, the first the first ingredient on so many of your skincare products, if you pick something up on your bathroom shelf, guaranteed that will be the first. And then the active ingredient, the bit that we were really excited about that the brand was promising would, you know, undo all of our sleepless nights and um, sun sunbathing in Greek islands, um, was at the very, very bottom of the ingredients list. So it was like, actually, this is going to do nothing for our skin. And we just felt a bit like duped. And so what we decided to do was take matters into our own hands and kind of mimic what, you know, the food bloggers were doing in food, but with skin. So literally jump into the kitchen and say, could we just make this ourselves and get, you know, much higher quantities of better ingredients, stuff that, you know, we control what goes into it. And we put, we decide, you know, what benefits we want. And could we translate some of the stuff that we were learning about 
what fuels our body to fuel our skin. So, you know, understanding that avocados are really rich in omegas, for example, and that's really great for your insides. And But that can also be great for your skin and, you know, leads to kind of high moisture levels in your skin. And just kind of like, I guess, making that connection between what we're eating and what we're putting on our skin. And that was the very beginning of um, a blog called Clean Beauty Insiders, where we just essentially started sharing recipes and um yeah, experimenting in our kitchen sink. So that was the, that wasn't the light bulb moment of Bybee the brand, but that was the, the light bulb moment of the two of us coming together and starting what was then a project, a passion project, um, but would go on to become commercial. Um, but it really did start with, you know, this, um, a kind of like mutual um, love of skincare and wellness and um, just this drive to want to do something a little bit better and just take control of our, our skincare and our, our beauty routines. And, um yeah we would plaster everything all over instagram of us basically you know avocado on our face aprons at the kitchen sink it sounds like you're having a lot of fun by the way elsie that's just it i think we can cut the podcast now can't we she's done it <laughs> i've got to do the business bit next but that was such a great intro thank you i know you probably shared that so much but no, thank you good. for making it sound so interesting as well i i guess uh, dominica what it took well, your motivations sound like they were very similar and and on the on the sort of that moment around 2013 in the beauty industry um, what hadn't, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised coming complete from the outside that like the body shop and Lush and other brands weren't trying to communicate a bit more openly and honestly about, you know, what was in the products. Was that something, was it complete universal or were there brands that you were like, oh yeah, if we could do a better version of that, we could get something going here. Yeah. I think like brands like Lush and body shop and actually you've pulled out great competitors of ours, um, in the, you know, they do a similar thing around value driven skincare, but, I think both of those brands actually perfectly articulate the issue that or the problem that we were trying to solve for, which is you don't feel like you're getting a high-end luxury beauty experience when you buy either of those brands, particularly Lush. I mean, they their whole brand messaging is around, you know, homemade and, you know, one-time use and you quite literally go in and you scoop up a pot of, you know, hair mask, which is, you know, very lovingly made and, um, you know, probably works really well, but it doesn't feel like you're getting um, that really premium beauty experience. So for us, it just seems like a really obvious move to create something that still maintained all of those great ethics and transparency is one of them. But for us, it's, you know, performance driven by naturals, it's vegan, it's cruelty free. Um, but deliver it in a way that still still felt mainstream. Um, and, and that at that time was just not being done. And still to an, a certain extent, I think as soon as you slap a natural label on something, automatically the brand tends to veer on a, a marketing strategy that makes it feel really holistic and wholesome. There's a lot of like green leaves and a lot of white and a lot of brown. And I guess that that makes sense if you're thinking, OK, natural, that feels quite earthy. But for us, we didn't want to sell a brand that was, was that felt alternative um, because we thought naturals gives us great skin. So we don't want to turn people off by creating something that feels a little bit, you know, left of field or less mainstream. Um, we want it to sit in Sephora and Boots and um and mainstream retailers, we don't want it to sit in Holland and Barrett. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with buying your beauty products at Holland and Barrett. But I don't think that a mainstream kind of skin intellectual, skin influencer, you know, mass beauty consumer goes into Holland and Barrett looking for high performance skincare. So that's that's exactly what we were trying to solve for. And yeah, you know, there are definitely brands that do it, but in beauty it's pretty hard to reinvent the wheel to be honest 
pretty much everything has been done. So often it's about finding a bit of white space. Um, so for us, it was, it was primarily around aesthetic, but also price. Um, you know, again, it seems really obvious, like why would you price your products really high <laughs> and make it a really kind of like niche luxury offering? But that's what a lot of natural brands were doing up until that point. You know, you would be spending upwards of 50 pounds for a single product. Um, and that, that's not available to most people. Um, so for us, we wanted to create a brand that could be really accessible and, and not only through distribution, but um, price point as well. And, and uh, by the way, I've just written Skin Intellectuals down as like, I've got to get that into my Christmas dinner table chat. So it's not, it's not a word that I've, I've come across before. It's great. Um, I'd, I'd love to jump back a couple of steps because I feel like we've almost missed out on a key part, which is, and for, the, for our audience at Virgin Startup, uh, listening in, there's so many who are uh, interested in building businesses in the clean beauty, uh, fashion, retail, con direct to consumer, um, with sustainability and impact models. So, so this is crucial to get get this part of the story out. But how did you go from the kitchen experimentation to uh, to reaching your first customers? God, it sounds like such an easy leap, doesn't it? But it was so there were so many micro steps along that path. I don't think you can answer that with just like we did this. I think when we decided to launch a brand, we were in a good position because we had built up a community and a, a presence through Clean Beauty Insiders. And I think that was probably the one most powerful thing or, or key thing that we did prior to launching the brand. Because when we went into any sort of conversations, whether it was manufacturers, retailers, you know, even custom, even DTC customers, we could direct them to a source of legitimacy and a real um, destination to give them a brand experience before we had a brand. Um, and, you know, we did, I think we were just really smart, you know, a couple of things, sorry, that sounded really like <laughs> not very modest, but. No, know. but the evidence of what worked, right? That's what we're talking yeah. about. Really. Yeah. I think we just made a couple of like good decisions in the early days. For example, we took on PR representation um, for us as a content platform. So Clean Beauty Insiders, LC and I. Um, and I think that was, that was clever because we got a lot of press around you know us as personalities and a lot of yeah eyes and and you know quite a lot of like physical articles that we could show people um you know once the evening standard called us the new faces of natural skincare and we got a full page of Elsie and I you know standing in at that time it was like a a cafe but we I'm sure we presented it as you know our like lovely kitchen or whatever but you know, those things. And when, when you present that to a retailer, that's really powerful. Um, so I think that that was, you know, ha having some proof of concept, I guess it was, um, before launching a brand was, was really powerful for us. And even when we went to then raise money and even get our virgin startup loan, you know, we weren't saying we've got an idea. Can we have some funds to see if it works? We've said, we have all of this proof of concept. We know this customer really wants this brand. Will you give us the funding to create it? Um, and I think that that just meant that we got off on a really strong foot. Um, and we really understood, you know, we were having in-person conversations with our customer for years before we launched a brand. And I think, yes, there's a, there's a big focus on data and, you know, community and online communities, but actually just having 
you know, real authentic conversations with potential customers face to face over a glass of Prosecco is actually like, don't don't discredit it or, or just because you can't put numbers behind it, don't think that it's not a valid way of consumer research. Um, oh, it's, a, it's as, as real a piece of research as you can get, right? Human to human. And we, are, we, are, we completely underestimate it. And we see at Virgin Startup, those that do what, what you've done, which is basically spend a lot of time in conversation, connecting, learning, being passionate and curious about the same, solving the same problem and lifestyle are the ones that then have like, not just a customer base, but a huge bunch of valuable insights. So it's the key lesson at the start. So, so uh, not surprised you went on to success. And then tell us a little bit about um, how you used the loan and then what that led to. So there was obviously, uh, you know, there's a, there's a book, there's a podcast, other things that you've built on top of that initial blog and, and first product. Yeah, I think um, the book, we wrote the book before the loan, actually. So um, the book was kind of like an iteration of everything we were doing with Clean Beauty Insiders. Um, and it was one of the things that really acted as, a, I guess, a, a proof of concept when we were thinking about whether there was a real appetite for what we were doing. The book went to six-way auction in the end. Um, and we decided to move ahead with Penguin to publish it. Um, and I think like that to us was just a real like tick box that there was, you know, the market was moving this way. If publishers were looking for this kind of thing and sort of like, yeah, it sounds big headed to say, but like falling over themselves, like, you know, auctioning to, to, to win the publishing rights to our book, then obviously we were onto something. And that was kind of like one of the key moments where, you know, transitioned from this is probably not just a passion project. We could probably do something more. But we wrote the entire book while we were still working um, and running Clean Beauty Insiders on the side um, and and wrote the book. Um, that must have been year. quite an intense time for you both, because a, a book yeah. is a, a full time job in itself, let alone, you know, building community content research and a nine to five, which I'm sure was more than a nine to five. How did you. How did you manage that period of, in your lives? I mean, it was tricky. You know, luckily at that point, neither of us, like, you know, this, this was back in our 20s. So we, you know, we didn't have um, children or husbands or any other responsibility, even pets at that point, any other kind of responsibilities to distract us. And we could kind of pump our everything into that. And we had oodles of 20-something energy that meant that we could, you know, stay up writing a book till 3am and then probably go out the next night and drink wine till 3am like you know so the the time the life stage was you know definitely played in our favor having said that the the jobs that we were working at weren't exactly easy um you know as I said we were working in advertising at when we were at the time of the writing the book Dominica was pretty much running the European sales team for a huge um kind of retargeting platform um, so it was like a weighty job, you know, we had quite a lot of responsibility, definitely for our age, I was working at Facebook. So it was it was a stressful time. I think what kind of saw us through was this glimmer of, as I said, you know, the fact that somebody is publishing a book means we're onto something. And, you know, certainly for, for me speaking personally, like there was a glimmer of, you know, I think this is, this is going to be my career, this is going to be where I'm going. As much as it was a, you know, a, a, a fun and cool job to be in um, media, like it definitely wasn't, you know, what I was passionate about. And I d didn't see myself there for the next 20 years. So writing this book on the side, like I could pump the energy into it because I was excited about what it meant for the future of like my career and where we were going with it. And we both like really believed that we, 
we could make something of it and we're onto it. Um, but it was also just a lot of evenings, a lot of weekends. We were also like running all of the workshops at, at this point as well. And the like we just started that, we started a clean beauty festival, like of course, as you do. Um, but that was kind of like the year of 2016. And then it got to September and we quit our jobs. And the book was published in January 2017. And we got the startup loan in January 2017 as well. So it kind of like coincided. Um, but the loan was very much for the product brand. So we'd built all, everything, the, all of the content stuff, the book, the blog, the workshops, all of that stuff, we built just completely organically, you know, self-funded. And then when we knew that we wanted to create Vibe as a brand and that um, we'd need to work with a manufacturer to produce anything, at, you know, the scale that I was talking about earlier, like... We, we dabbled with hand producing stuff, but there's just, I mean, we'd get an order and we'd be like, oh, for God's sake, we've got to make like 500 babe bombs. Like, when are we going to do that? So we knew we needed to work with a manufacturer. And when you get to that point, you know, you do need a little bit of finance to, to physically be able to buy product just because the nature of the way that working with retailers work is that, you know, the, the, their, their payment to you is delayed and you'll have to pay for your goods before you get payment for selling them on. So at that point, it was clear that we needed funding and that was really where we stumbled across. And it sounds like Virgin was... I didn't realise that it was um quite so new. It was still quite a new thing at that stage. Yeah, well, if, it, if that Virgin, was end of but... 2016, you were probably, yeah, a year, in, a year into it. I, would, I remember the first... Um, startup that I helped with was Flashpack, who we also interviewed on this podcast six years later. And that you have lots of similarities in terms of positioning value. I've been thinking about it as 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 I'm listening this afternoon. But actually, yeah, they were the first one that that I was a business advisor on with, and that was yeah 2015. So I think you were in the yeah first early batch, which is why it's so great to catch up on your story now. Um, I'd love to hear about you know where. The, the, the dreaded sustainability word fits into all this because sustainability does make people usually react with a kind of like one, go either go cross-eyed or two, it's like everyone's got a different sort of definition of what that means to themselves. But from reading your story, it's very clear that this, how do we tread lightly or, or end up having a more positive impact through our, you know, our, our mission and our brand and our products than a negative one on the environment. How have you done that without trying to create more mass consumption because it feels like your world, there's a tension there, isn't there, between beauty and wellness and consumption and sustainability. Sorry, that's not a very straightforward question, but I'm, I'm curious to hear about the journey on that front. Yeah, but I think you addressed um, quite a lot of the tensions that we have, like just in that narrative. It's like you've alluded to the fact that there's no definition that being consumer brand is uh, hypocritical to being sustainable, um, that we should be encouraging less consumption rather than people buying more products. You address all of our key issues there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess, so sustainability, so we don't like to use that word um, because as a product brand shipping goods around the world, inherently we are unsustainable, right? We don't have a circular model. We create product that most of the time ends up in landfill. And there's not really much that we can do about that, um, despite the best intentions of recyclable packaging and, you know, everything that we can do within the means of our brand. So sustainability for us is more about supply chain and raw material sourcing. How can we source sustainable materials rather than saying that we are a sustainable brand? But the roots of, I guess, environmentalism, thinking about things more consciously, 
was something that has been with us since 2015. The whole premise of Clean Beauty Insiders is going into your fridge and taking something that, you know, would just be going off or, you know, you've eaten half a banana, why don't you use the rest of that in a hair mask or you've got a little bit of green smoothie left, slap it on your face, you know, and without even calling it or knowing that's what it was, we had these philosophies of just being more conscious with your consumption you know making things at home means that you're not using single-use packaging you're not buying things you know it's it's very sustainable really DIY skincare um so I think we always had a passion and, and both Elsie and I are um true environmentalists and activists at heart if we could do more we would um obviously we we try and use our platform that we've built for good but it's, you know, there is a, a serious situation facing us and we're very cognizant of that. However, we wanted to create a brand um, for many reasons, one of which we thought we could do things better and we thought we could raise the standard of what's expected from a sustainable beauty brand or a brand purporting sustainability in some respect. So we always try to do things better. You know, we've used better packaging. We've tried to, to have transparency across our supply chain, even things like, you know, making sure that the workers in our supply chain are being paid fairly and treated fairly, which is a conversation that doesn't really happen in beauty. And I think for our consumer, they probably had a vague sense that we were a better for the planet brand, but couldn't really point out why. <laughs> you know, we talked a lot about climate change and the Amazon fires and talking about how um, climate change disproportionately affects women in third world countries. But they were like, well, I'm not exactly sure how Bybe is sustainable, but they talk a lot about it, so they must be. Um, and that's kind of where we got to. So we thought, okay, you know, we are definitely building a brand that has um, a strong value around this. So how can we articulate it better for our customer? And when we stood back and kind of looked at all of our micro in initiatives internally actually all of them were centered around reducing our carbon emissions we just hadn't articulated it quite that clearly but the packaging that we use is low carbon not derived from fossil fuels we use green energy we have a circular recycling scheme and you know i have a big focus on refills and you know reducing waste to landfill we use upcycled ingredients from food waste streams you know the roots of it was all centered around how can we reduce our carbon footprint so it was quite easy for us to then say okay let's let's center our mission around carbon we are a consumer brand we will continue to create products we can't not create products so how can we do that and try and build a positive impact around it and that is where the ambition for carbon negativity came the acknowledgement that we are not going to stop creating products and we're always going to create products that have an impact but are, can we build something that can actually start to have a positive impact and you know we're doing it we're building a proprietary supply chain that will be carbon negative so that is through the process of sequestration and insetting absorbing more carbon than it releases we're never going to be net zero carbon because there are processes within our supply chain which will always emit carbon primarily around distribution but there are enough processes that we're building that actually absorb carbon. There's a, a lot of plants and materials that we use that are carbon sequesterers. So we're actually able to, within our own supply chain, start to offset the carbon that we emit. So that is our mission. It's a, quite a big one. Um, but I think, again, if you're going to talk about being climate conscious, sustainable, pro-planet, you have to have something really quite ambitious. Otherwise, it 
it does tend to fall in the green washing category. And, you know, as you've got in a sense, hopefully from already, we tend to be quite ambitious with our goals. <laughs> There's two things I pick up just from listening to you there, Dominica. One is the ambition. But two is like the, um, and I, I guess this is true of every part of what you've done so far on the journey, is, is the attention to detail and almost how you kind of like geek out on this in the way that, you know, now you're going deep into how do we capture carbon through our supply chains and rather than emit it and, and so on, which is fantastic. And I'm fascinated by that piece of around con- consumers, your your customers and your supporters, how they how you connect them to this bigger picture. So you talked about the Amazon fires or the climate injustice that's going on in the world. Are, are you seeing a shift with your audience in terms of their engagement with these issues? Or is it still very much like best product, great price point? Oh, and it also is pro-planet. What's going on with your customers? I think at the moment it's still the latter. It's not... Um... It's definitely not the the decision maker and it's not a deal breaker for customers either. Um, I think that helping consumers feel like they're making a conscious decision um, certainly helps in, in that, getting them over the hurdle to try the brand for the first time, but it won't be the, the leading factor. Um, it really helps with loyalty and retention. That's where we see it starts to become more important. So once people buy our products and, and are comfortable that they work, the reason that they'll stay with our moisturiser and our cleanser is not only performance, but also because of everything that we're doing. Um, and at that point, we can start to shift them over to Bybee.com as well. And, um, you know, we, we see that um, retention rates on our direct channel are, are really, really strong. And, you know, if you're shopping with Bybee on our website, you get a whole load of added benefits with, um, you know, that kind of like a glimpse into our environmentalism. So there's a load of content that we share we go, you know, really deep into our carbon mission on our website. Um, your order arrives in a low carbon um, electric vehicle and sh- and grass paper box. Like there's a lot of added value um, pieces that keep our customer with us and are kind of like wrapped up in that world of, um, yeah, of sustainability. The dirty word, but there's nothing else to. to no, that's the word underneath it. In that, it in all, that respect, it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. like, no, you're 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 clearly the queens of uh, creative communications around this sort of kind of thing. But it's it's fascinating to hear how that uh, you know you're bringing in an audience and then they're discovering uh, the challenges and the mission and everything in the educational piece, which is fantastic. And then you're making it remarkable through the packaging and the delivery, so people talk about it, which is which is brilliant. So let's bring the, the Bybee story up to date. You've raised a, a Series A uh, round of 7 million US. How was that fundraise? Uh, what's that enabling you to do? And what's what's the focus now? Yeah, I mean, it was quite a tough fundraise because it was in the middle of a global pandemic. And we were both pregnant. I was, I think, eight and a half months pregnant when we closed that. So that was Wow, <laughs> that's, that's, that's something to, you know, kickstart reaction um but you know just just one of the many things we've uh, got through and executed on um so yeah the, the fundraise was really centered around our u.s launch um so we secured a, a really big listing with target um to launch this january just gone um into uh, almost full chain with target in the u.s um so we've got a really nice uh kind of niche but um well executed assortment across pretty much every store in the US which is is absolutely crazy. Give it give us a sense of the, that scale in numbers. I mean I mean we you know we're talking we're, I mean we're selling like thousands and thousands of units a week through Target, you know. And 
that I mean that that just blows actually blows my mind every time I see them come through like thousands of people every week are buying our products somewhere in the US like it's just it's crazy um but yeah no the scale the scale is huge and I think we're really finding the best way to build the business in the US the US is so challenging particularly in the last 18 months because we physically haven't been able to travel there and I think, you know, for us, new market launches have always been really centered around us as founders. You know, we would go in market, we would spend a lot of time there, we would meet, you know, the people handling the brand. And I think, yeah, for our, like, literally our biggest launch by a mile, we weren't able to do that. So we had to really think about how we could do that, you know, from across the pond. Um, so we're still navigating that and it's great to see the business growing. And I think we've got a lot more to do in the US, but we've got the distribution partner now to really grow, which is amazing. Um, so that's that's really what the Series A was centered around, building out the team, inventory building, um, and then starting our market um, launch strategy for the US. So I think the future for us holds just really growing and, and penetrating the retail channels that we're already in. I think for us now, it's around proving sell-through, really proving customer retention, um, repeat purchase, um, growing our direct channels in, in just more interesting and thoughtful ways. So that's really the focus for next year. I think we're now thinking about, you know, where do we go from skincare? You know, I, I think nodding back to what we've talked about, consumption, like we don't want to just keep launching loads of products in the same category that then not only end up cannibalizing one another from a sales perspective, but actually like how many eye creams does one person need? Like probably just one, probably one just good one. Um, so I think, yeah, we, you know, we've got 20, 25 SKUs, including gift sets on the skincare range. It, you know, do we just want to keep pushing out newness there? I think is is the next kind of question mark. Um, you see a lot of brands now going cross category for growth. I think it's it's comfortable that people, you know, that inherently skincare go into things like body or hair or color. So we're thinking, yeah, about what the natural next extension for us and what we could do that really adds value rather than just creating more product. Oh, it's so exciting to hear that with the, with the values at the heart of it. My final question was, how are you both managing the transition from you know, these brilliant creative content makers and explorers and community builders to, to CEOs or whatever titles you use of a, of a now a, a scaling business, because it is a different role in many ways. How are you maintaining your kind of passion for what you've, you've been doing for the last, last eight or nine years as you scale up to the, to the next level? We've got a great team around us that we spent a lot of our fundraising building. Um, and I think what that's meant is that we have crafted out our now roles to be roles that are only the good bits, are only the enjoyable bits, are the bits of what we, you know, have loved doing from the off. And they're different things for each of us individually um and made sure that we've delegated down the like weeds of the business day-to-day -day stuff that was quite frankly like not a useful or efficient use of our time um and neither of us had any experience in so actually probably weren't the best people to be doing it anyway um so I think like building out that team has meant that we've really been able to kind of like step into our own and and take on leadership and management roles that we really enjoy um and that keeps us motivated I think that keeps the job interesting. It keeps it fun. 
um it keeps us challenged i'm not saying it's easy um and with them we've got a great team around us of real experts that know really what they're doing a lot more than we do um who yeah have helped us kind of like craft the next stage of growth um for for the business and there's definitely been a transition it's a lot of changing a lot of learning and you know there were some you know there's always the kind of like teething issues of as you move through these stages of um business everybody kind of adapting and understanding and um changing roles and identifying responsibilities and you know we're definitely not perfect with it but it's been you know a real breath of fresh air to be able to delegate down to people um yeah to just a great team um, of people so yeah. yeah high 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 brilliant people is the key isn't it which makes it sound easy um and and sorry final final thing uh top tip to those listening who are who are building a business with one other person what you, you both see you seem to have built this fantastic partnership what what is the uh, other than being great friends on a shared mission what's what's helped you maintain that good relationship through difficult times um i think like the relationship between co-founders is the most one of the most rela- important relationships you'll have in your life to be honest um you spend like an inordinate amount of time um, with that other person. So obviously it has to be rooted in friendship, but I think it's so much more than that. Um, I think one thing that Elsie and I have always had is like a deep mutual respect for one another. Um, And I think that facilitates a lot of clear communication during the, the harder times because we know that the other person is thinking smart, is thinking with their best foot forward um, and we're both incredibly hard workers so there's never a question mark over is she pulling her weight you know so then when you push those things aside at times of conflict it's really conflict around strategy rather than relationship management so yeah I, I think we we set the relationship off on the right foot in that we we met in a working environment so we our mutual respect was founded in a professional one um and you know those early days of like absolute grafting um which I, you know we definitely still graft like so hard but it's a different kind of graft it's not as physical um as it was in the first day in the early days but you know neither of us like I mean I've never heard a, an ounce of complaint from Elsie's mouth as we're like lugging up like five kilo boxes of empty bottles up narrow stairs you know and I think like going through moments like that just really um is important in the early stages to make sure that your partnership is um, aligned. But yeah, I think we just have profound respect for one another and um, that then leads to a sense of empathy when there are times of conflict. Um, But, you know, as all relationships, it takes a long time for it to be well understood. You know, we've definitely gone through um, times of the relationship being harder than others, but I think we've always been, um, had a real belief in what we're trying to build so there's been the motivation to like always work through it and find a resolution and come back to a place of, um, you know, level footing because we really believed in what we were trying to build. So, um, yeah. So it's gold for startup founders, but yeah, re- professional setting, mutual respect, and then the trust at the heart of it. That was fantastic. Thank you. For those today that are listening going, yeah, I'm thinking about starting a business in whatever space it is. But I'm not sure because the world seems to be so changeable and everything else. What would you what would you encourage them to sort of focus on to help them make that decision? Look, I mean, it can still be done. I think like you just have to think smart about what the world needs right now, what customers are looking for right now, where customers are right now as well. Yeah, I don't know. Just have a think 
have a think about what what you think people are looking for at the moment and where you think they are and I think that the, obviously the pandemic is I mean the fact that it's still going on just is um horrendous for all of us but there have been industries that have been smart with it have come out of it you know and done pretty well have pivoted really well have um yeah really rethought and reshaped business models and actually there's been some innovation that's that's been kind of like spurned out of it so there's you know a, li- a few good things out of a very very bad situation so I think just yeah use your your business founder mindset and intuition to just have a real think about like what people need and want and where they are right now. Elsie and Dominique are co-founders of The Brilliant Bybee. Congratulations on this amazing story. I'm looking forward to reading the next book and uh, thank you for your time for the Virgin Startup Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Goldfish Studios for Virgin Startup. Visit virginstartup.org for more. I've been Ben Keen. Thanks for listening.